The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my friend and colleague, Catherine Holden. She also is a registered dietitian. But she specializes in diet for Parkinson's disease, and she's been at this for decades. And she's written many books. She has spoken all over the world, really, about understanding how nutritional needs of people with Parkinson's differ from the general population. And her aim is to provide the knowledge needed to prevent nutrition-related hospitalizations, to make the best use of Parkinson's disease medications and maintain an independent lifestyle, which is something that we all want. So, Catherine, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm delighted. I've known you for many, many years, and I know that you have specifically targeted Parkinson's disease for a long time. And I wonder, what is it that got you interested in Parkinson's disease? Well, I found, sort of fell into it, found out about it almost by accident, and I quickly learned that none of my seven years of university education had mentioned Parkinson's disease in any way, and yet there were a host of nutrition-related problems. I thought this was very disturbing, and I've tried my best to make people and uh, health professionals aware of the need for nutrition help and information for Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should back up and just just ask a general question. What is Parkinson's disease? It's a neurological disorder in which, for many possible reasons, dopamine-producing cells in the brain are destroyed. It can happen for any number of reasons. Muhammad Ali, for instance, is a, a boxer. He and any number of boxers have developed Parkinson's and it's presumed from physical trauma. But on the other hand, among the greatest incidents of Parkinson's are farmers in the Midwest. It's been determined that it is likely due to spraying the fields with pesticides, and then the pesticides, rain washes the pesticides into the groundwater, and in rural areas, this is what people drink from their wells. Mm-hmm. And they believe that this is probably why there's a greater incidence there. I had a, uh, a friend, a young woman with young-onset Parkinson's disease, who told me that when she was a little child, her father had a big barrel of white powder, and she used to play dress-up, and then she'd put this powder all over her face, playing grown-up. And years later, she discovered that the white powder was DDT. So we think that there are probably any number of possible reasons, but as far as we know, they are not due to nutrition, and yet at the same time, we learn things like people who drink a lot of coffee tend to have less degree of Parkinson's, people who are low in vitamin D, 
people, they found that people, uh, especially newly diagnosed people with Parkinson's, tend to be low deficient in vitamin D. So there are relationships that we're just not entirely aware of cognizant of, but they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember interviewing a researcher probably a couple of years ago already who was doing research in the Central Valley in California, also an area that is heavily contaminated with pesticide and herbicides. And she was looking specifically at, I believe it was Paraquat and Rotenone were also linked, at least in animal models, to the development of Parkinson's. And I believe there was a report in the popular press about an entire farming community in California where Parkinson's diagnosis was very common. And you have to wonder, you know, those relationships between the environment and genetics. So if you have someone in your family that has had Parkinson's, is someone more likely to develop it due to a genetic reason? Or is it this combination of susceptibility plus the environmental hazards? There certainly is a genetic factor. Sergey Brin, who uh, developed Google, found out that his his mother had Parkinson's disease, and he wanted to find out if he was susceptible himself. And indeed, yes, he and his brothers carry the gene. It doesn't mean that you will get Parkinson's disease, but if some other factor tips the balance, then it's much more likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see how those two components, our environment and our genes, interplay. And everyone is a unique individual, so you throw that in, too. Well, your website, and I should just let our listeners know that it's www.nutritionyoucanlivewith.com, and that's you, the letter U, not spelled out, is rich with, you've got certainly your extensive background in Parkinson's research and writing about the nutrition connections, your book, you've got a daily tip, you've got information about yourself. And I was really interested in one of the pieces that you have because it's so easy to navigate, but it's simply care and wellness, 10 nutrition tips for living well with Parkinson's disease. And I thought, you know, we should maybe go through some of those. So we're assuming that a person is diagnosed and they are prescribed medications. Are they prescribed medications right away? Yes, they always are. Some people elect not to take medications right away, but the dogma, the thinking is that some of the newer medications may, there was some thought that one of the newer medications could delay progression. At any rate, there's not much point in not doing it. There was some thinking for a while that levodopa Use of levodopa might make things worse, might make it go faster, progress more, but that's pretty much been discredited. Mm -hmm. For the best quality of life, it makes more sense to begin medications. Okay. I'm assuming that the, the medications are acting on getting more dopamine into the system. How do they work exactly? Well... You can take dopamine by mouth, but it unfortunately is broken down in the stomach and never reaches the brain. In order to have the dopamine accessible, what you must do is take levodopa. The levodopa can cross the blood-brain barrier and there be transmitted into dopamine. That is one thing that can be done, but in the early stages, the person generally is still making some dopamine 
so they have medications that, oh, some of them sort of fool the brain into thinking it's getting more dopamine than it is. Some of them work in other ways. And this often is very effective for quite a while, particularly in younger persons. Eventually, more and more and more of the dopamine-producing cells are lost, and that's when you really do have to start taking levodopa. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting that in these 10 nutrition tips, many of them are related to the drugs and the side effects of the drugs. So, for example, nausea can occur when individuals start taking their Parkinson's medications. So you recommend consuming ginger because that can help prevent nausea. Tell me about some of the other tips that you've outlined for people who may be taking drugs and not know that nutritional help can be very useful. Well, a lot of people and a lot of doctors do not realize to what extent Parkinson's affects the entire gastrointestinal tract. It can slow stomach emptying, for for instance, that's called gastroparesis. And when that happens, let's say you eat, eat a meal that normally would clear the stomach in 90 minutes. Well, now your stomach just isn't moving as quickly as normal. So instead of 90 minutes, the food may stay in there for three, four, five hours. Hmm. Well, people taking levodopa or any medications are almost bound to have to take one of their medications during that time. What's going to happen to it? The food is there in the stomach. Then the medication goes in, and the medication sits there on top of the food until the stomach can clear. Now, levodopa in particular has a very short half-life. And by the time it clears the stomach and enters the bloodstream, it has already broken down, and it's useless. Wow. So the person begins to experience what they call on-off or motor fluctuations. Their medication isn't working. Their Parkinson's symptoms return. So one of the ways you can counteract that is, number one, eat meals that are low in fat. Fat takes much longer to clear the stomach than carbohydrates and proteins. And another thing you can do is, first of all, take your levodopa a good 30 minutes before the meal, then eat several small meals during the day. Instead of three square big meals a day, eat five or six little meals because the stomach can clear a small amount of food in a much quicker time than uh, a big meal. Mm-hmm. So there are ways of getting around it. Right. And I imagine that fiber might be helpful. And fiber is tremendously helpful. I did a small pilot study of about 24 people with Parkinson's. Just asked them to write down everything that they ate and drank for three days. I was concerned at the time about whether they were getting enough calcium to prevent fractures because falls can occur as Parkinson progresses, and you'd like to have the bones strong and healthy so that they can resist that trauma. But I found out much more than that. Not only were they not getting enough calcium or vitamin D, they also weren't drinking enough fluids, and they were not remotely getting enough fiber. They were effectively eating a recipe for constipation. Mm -hmm. And along with constipation, as we know, If it is protracted and if we use or overuse or abuse laxatives, 
what can happen is we lose tonicity of the colon. The colon becomes flabby and enlarged. And then what can happen with constipation is that the stool backs up and becomes very hard and cannot be passed. This is called bowel impaction. And any number of persons have been hospitalized and even had to have surgical removal due to bowel impaction. So this is another thing we'd like to prevent, and I work very hard on I even have a, a, a CD and booklet on preventing constipation because it's so huge. It's just a, a ghastly problem. Well, the American or the Western diet is very constipating unless people really pay attention to get more fruits and vegetables and fibers into their diet. So compound that with having a condition, and it's very easy to see how uh, the problem can be large among this population. You know, I wonder, too, about age of diagnosis. You mentioned that you knew a woman that had an early onset, but is there a year of age when we're more likely to see a Parkinson's diagnosis? Yes, the early 60s. There are slightly more men than women, and usually, most of the time, it will be in the early 60s. But, disturbingly, we are seeing more and more young-onset people today than we were when I first began studying in Parkinson's, hmm. and I'm not sure why that is. I, I'm not happy about it at all. Yeah. It may be that diagnosis is improving. I, that could very well be the answer. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, with age, oftentimes people don't like to drink water because it means more trips to the bathroom. So you start thinking about all of these confounding issues that we have in our lives that would further exacerbate a problem with constipation. So... You know, it's something that dietitians talk about very easily amongst our amongst ourselves, but um, and it's probably not very you know publicly or socially acceptable to have this conversation in large groups. But the truth of the matter is, constipation is a huge problem in our country. I remember seeing one time a statistic on how many people took laxatives, and I was really amazed because it's one of those conditions that can be more easily managed with diet than we may think. So this is a good news message that. Simple changes to the diet can really help. Now, I also thought it was interesting that on your list of dietary tips, you list tea because of their unique compounds, polyphenols, and that people who drink tea seem to be diagnosed less with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Do we know what the mechanism is there? No, not entirely we don't, but green tea in particular has spurred intense interest. There are dozens and dozens of studies out now, literally, on green tea with regard to Parkinson's disease. Mm. And no, we don't have any good answers, I'm sorry to say, other than it is full of powerful antioxidants and appears, appears to protect dopamine-producing neurons. I I don't want to say it does, because we don't know that for a fact, but that's where the research is tending. Mm-hmm. It falls under the category of it can't hurt. <laughs> Precisely. There's a very interesting herb called uh, Bacopa. It's an Ayurvedic herb, and it is used for memory enhancement. It has been used for centuries in India. And that has spurred some interest also. There so far, do not believe there are any human trials on it, but they have done, oh gosh, I don't know, six or eight studies on Bacopa 
using uh, cell cultures and using animal models, and they are finding that it's it's very exciting research. Yeah. Can you spell that for us? Oh, Bacopa, it's a B-A-C-O-P-A. Okay, perfect. Let me take one moment here, Catherine, to let our listeners know that we are speaking with Catherine Holden. She is a fellow registered dietitian, only she specializes and has been specializing for decades in diet for Parkinson's disease. And she's really been a pioneer in this area, speaking internationally about the relationships between diet and health and Parkinson's and medications and how to lead a more independent lifestyle. Okay, so bacopa is one of the herbs that we're looking at as having maybe some potential for help. Anything else in the herbal category? Or I'm looking on your list here, for example, like turmeric. What a fascinating compound, right? This comes from a root. In fact, I've seen it more in some of the grocery stores, even sold next to ginger. It seems to have a lot of benefits. And here it is on this list for helping with people with Parkinson's as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, turmeric um, actually has been used in Ayurvedic medicine, again, for centuries. And I don't believe it is used directly to treat Parkinson's, but one of the things that is recommended is a glass of warm milk with uh, turmeric stirred in. And I believe they may also use uh, cardamom seeds and so forth, more or less like a chai. But that, too, has spurred intense research, and it looks very promising. And once again, frustratingly, you'd like to have a definite black or white yes or no answer, which we don't have, but it is to the extent turmeric has been proven so beneficial in so many, many, many ways that I strongly recommend it. It is, and there's a little bit of division here, it supposedly is not particularly, the, the active component, curcumin, is not particularly well absorbed, so they recommend taking it with uh, pepper, black pepper, or I guess any pepper, but certainly black pepper, and preferably cooked. It's absorbed better in the presence of pepper and oil, and preferably cooked. But uh, interestingly, an Indian physician said this is not true. The fact of the matter is, it's absorbed so rapidly, he says, that it clears the body before they can test for it, so they're not seeing it. And he, he said that, yeah, he said, he denies that, that that's true. Hmm. I don't know, but I do recommend its use. Yeah. You know, it's, it's another one of those compounds where it could be helpful, so go ahead and add it to your diet. I certainly use it myself in Indian dishes if I'm going to make curry. That, as well as ginger, go nicely together, so that's very helpful. You also have here that, this is really interesting to me, and I don't know if you can explain the mechanism or even if it's known, but people with Parkinson's disease often develop a sweet tooth. How does that happen? Yes. It's just speculation. There's, it's almost, oh, I would say probably 90%, and there's good deal of speculation. Um, one thought is that with levodopa, it appears that sugar enhances uptake. Hmm. I'm not 100% convinced on that, but anecdotally, dozens and dozens and dozens of people will tell you that if they take their levodopa with a glass of water versus 
with, let's say, uh, uh, Coca-Cola, the uptake with the Coke is much speedier. Hmm. So it may be that on some perhaps subconscious level, people crave the sugar because they know it's going to help their their levodopa uptake. Another one, which I I think might be a little more accurate, is that the brain, of course, is the greatest user of glucose of any of our organs. And it is the brain in which the levodopa is crossing the blood-brain barrier and, and doing its work. And because sugar is converted very quickly to glucose, it is entirely possible that that glucose is um, enhancing the uh, action of the levodopa in the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's go back to the fiber issue here for just a moment, as long as we're talking about digestion. And you specifically list flaxseed, ground flaxseed. And I'm curious to know why you've listed flax and some of the more soluble fibers like beans as opposed to wheat bran. And our listeners might be interested in knowing that there's really two kinds of fiber, one being soluble, one insoluble. And it's the soluble fiber that helps say, lower cholesterol levels, but it's the insoluble fiber, as we'd find in wheat bran, that helps move fecal material through our bodies faster. So why the recommendation for the soluble fiber, Catherine? Well, flaxseed, in fact, contains both kinds. They are, they are rich in soluble fiber, that is true. It does help keep blood sugar in control, however, which is good. It can slow stomach emptying, but typically you don't eat very much of it, a teaspoon, mm-hmm. two teaspoons. Um, maybe up to a tablespoon, but it's not like eating a whole bowl of oatmeal, for instance. And they also, however, contain insoluble fiber. And the other thing is that they are very rich, flaxseed, in protective fatty acids. And they contain lignans as well, which may protect against cancer. I don't know what types of cancer. I just know that they worked on it. And I do know that Persons with Parkinson's taking levodopa are more prone to skin cancer. Oh, interesting. Well, you've also got fish here for the same reason, for those beneficial omega-3 fatty acids. So yet again, also in protecting the brain against dementia and depression, which I think is a, another big factor. I think when anybody is dealing with a chronic disease such as this, it would be normal to feel depressed. Does the disease itself contribute to depression outside of what might consider to be normally, if you've got a chronic disease, you you would probably typically feel depressed? Actually, depression can be among the very first signs of Parkinson's before it's ever diagnosed. Hmm. They have learned over and over that frequently persons have been depressed for several years, then they begin to develop constipation, then they begin to develop the tremor or whatever, and then they get diagnosed. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's extremely important. We know that a significant portion of the gray matter of the brain is made up of omega-3 fatty acids. We know that, and we know that deficiency of omega-3 fatty acids is associated with depression and dementia. So I strongly, strongly recommend fatty fish several times a week. And if you absolutely cannot tolerate fish, which I understand, then I I certainly would go for 
or fish oil capsules. Is there a dose that you recommend on fish oil supplements? Unfortunately, there is not. With heart disease, it's uh, they've, they've got guidelines for you to follow. Right. Marvelous. And I don't see any reason why you, I, I don't have those in front of me, but I don't see any reason why not to follow the heart disease guidelines. And I think um, I think it's a 1,000 milligrams a day as a preventive tool, and then I think the American Heart Association recommends a little bit higher for individuals who have had a heart attack. But I don't think anybody can go wrong with a 1,000 milligrams of both the EPA and DHA. I agree. But is that 1,000 milligrams combined EPA yes. and DHA? Yes. Okay. That's typically the supplements that I've seen. And I, I think that's safe. And then, as you mentioned, you know, I, I prefer to eat to get my nutrients from foods, but that's just my personal take. But I agree that fish is great. And then there was the new study looking at organic whole milk having more omega-3 fatty acids, in fact, significantly higher amounts than conventional whole milk. And that's, of course, because the cows are eating grass. And I always recommend, too, that animals, we want to get, say, grass-fed beef, 100% grass-fed beef, also to push that omega-3 ratio in a more favorable direction. I agree, and the same with eggs from free-range chickens. And as long as we're on the topic, I, at this time, would not recommend, although salmon is a wonderful fish, high in fatty fish, high in omega-3s, I'm very hesitant to recommend farmed salmon because I haven't seen anything yet that proves to me that the salmon or the fat has the same nutrient profile as that of wild salmon. I would love to protect our ocean fish and conserve it and all like that, but I am not convinced yet that farmed salmon is doing it in a healthful way. No, I agree, and it has to do with what those fish are eating, and they're basically eating grains, and specifically genetically modified grains, which is a whole other topic that we don't have time for. (laughs) We just have a couple of minutes, and I just want to let our listeners know that in addition to the topics that we've been talking about on this list, the 10 nutrition tips for living well with Parkinson's disease, you've got nuts, you speak about the importance of antioxidant fruits, you know, berries, that kind of thing. Do you have anything that you want to leave our listeners with in terms of dietary recommendations and Parkinson's before we need to wrap up? Well, just very quickly, I would like to recommend strongly that everybody with Parkinson's, if you have not done so, have a baseline test for serum vitamin D. We know that many, many, many people are deficient in vitamin D, people with Parkinson's. And we know that it is associated with falls and fractures. So this is not an area where you'd like to be deficient. And it's relatively simple to establish normal levels of vitamin D. So I would highly recommend everyone have a a blood test. Well, that is great advice. And I also want to leave our listeners with your website once again. It's Nutrition You Can Live With. That's the letter U, nutritionyoucanlivewith.com. And there is so much information here on your website. I think you mentioned too, Catherine, that you have 
well, certainly you've written many books, but you've got PDFs available online, so people can get a lot of information just from your website. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to especially thank my friend and colleague, Catherine Holden, who is an expert in diet for Parkinson's disease. Catherine, thank you so much for being my guest. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here.